From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. That's what I think what makes this bill impressive is the fact that even though there are differences of opinion, uh, the state's attorneys came here and are neutral, the coalition is neutral, the sheriffs are neutral. You haven't answered my question. This is not about what the state's attorneys, four of them out in the state of Illinois, think about. This is between, this is about the men and women in this chamber who want answers on a very serious issue that you're asking our and everybody else's support for. That's the House Republican Jim Durkin and before that Democratic Senator Robert Peters. They're debating what has become known as the Safety Act. Changes were approved on the final day of the fall legislative session, but not everyone is happy. We'll talk about that and what else lawmakers did in the concluded session. That's coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and with us we have Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. And Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And we have with us, joining us today, Alex Degman, Statehouse reporter for WBEZ and Illinois Public Radio Stations. Alex, good to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me. We were at the Statehouse and covering all of this this week. We've been hearing for months changes were coming to what's known as the Safety Act. It's a law, a big criminal justice package that was approved a year ago. And it became quite a hot topic during the recent campaigns. Can you refresh our memories a bit about what some of the issues that Republicans and some prosecutors had raised about it and what lawmakers did? Yeah, over the summer, we started hearing a lot of concerns about the Safety Act, and they, like you said, they were mainly from Republicans, particularly about the Pretrial Fairness Act of the Safety Act, and that's the part that kind of clarifies a lot of things and eliminates cash bail, essentially. That's what people were concerned about, and the rumor going around was that once January 1st hit, there would be thousands of people, these potentially violent criminals, just automatically released onto the streets because cash bail was going away. Now, that was never going to happen, but lawmakers took that and they said, you know what, maybe we should take a look at this. Maybe we should see if there are some things that we can do. And they did. There were a lot of things that they talked about yesterday that did make it into this. Um, One of them clarifies that people being held on bail before the law kicks in January 1st can either stay where they're at on bail or they can petition to move into the new system. And those accused of low-level crimes, like we're talking petty shoplifting, things like that, they would require a hearing in seven days, a new pretrial hearing, and those considered flight risks or a threat to the public, for example, they would get a hearing in two to three months. Um, Something else it does, the measure also says police cannot immediately detain a person for certain burglaries. Uh, Burglary is a pretty wide category. So the things we're talking about here include, uh, you know, rifling through unlocked cars, uh, maybe even breaking into a car as long as there's not a person involved, uh, burglarizing a detached garage when the homeowner isn't there. But police can still detain someone accused of burglary if they meet the other requirements, like, for example, are they a danger to themselves or others, or are they going to run if they're given a summons? But it outlines other instances like non-probational, like non-probationable felonies or hate crimes where they can automatically be detained. That's kind of what we're talking about when we say something like expanding the detention net. Lawmakers talk a lot about the detention net, um, what crimes are automatically detainable, and that's what they're talking about. In a detention hearing, uh, it says prosecutors have to use specific facts to show that a person actually is dangerous enough for attention. One of the other big things that people were concerned about was what happens if you call the police if somebody is 
you know, bothering you at home or is trespassing in your business and won't leave. Uh, before, it was thought that if someone was on your front porch, police couldn't do anything if they were not violent necessarily. But uh, this bill clarifies that police can remove a trespasser if they're dangerous, first of all, and also if police cite that person for trespassing, but they don't leave. Um, they're not complying and they can they can arrest you for that. And judges also uh, can issue arrest warrants for people who miss court dates. Now, this is a laundry list of things, and there were a lot of changes that were made. But as you might imagine, uh, Republicans who have been against this from the start, and by the way, it passed with no Republican support. Um, it was strictly party lines, and Republicans just continued to say this is not enough. This was a flawed bill from the start. And you can make all the changes you want to it. You can make it all the trailers you want, but as uh, State Representative Deanne Mazaki put it, it's still a pig. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. So people like outgoing minority leader Jim Durkin uh, didn't get to debate this a whole lot last January. So there was a pretty strong contingent of folks who were railing not only against the changes, but also against the underlying bill itself. So Leader Durkin took about a half hour, which was most of the debate last time, because like he said, he didn't get a chance to question the sponsors last time. And throughout the debates, there were various things that were brought up, but there was one particular moment when incoming minority leader Tony McCombie told a very personal and really intense story. Um, I'm not going to repeat that because it's not my story to tell, but essentially she was complaining about a provision in the bill as is that they didn't change that would require a young crime victim to appear in court before her alleged attackers. And even though the bill's supporters agreed that in this situation, this particular instance, that's a problem, uh, they couldn't really answer why that's in there. And they kept going back to the line of questioning, uh, or they kept going back to the um, supporters of the bill and the victims advocates who support the bill and the state's attorneys who are now neutral. That was a lot of the, that, that was pretty much the uh, standard answer it seemed like at some points. So that is that is just a roundabout way of saying Republicans continue to say that this has always been and likely always will be a bad bill uh, because they keep adding trailers. And, you know, when they were talking about the very personal instance from Leader McCombie, uh, they were insinuating that that's an issue and there might be yet another trailer bill this upcoming session to address that. And their point is, who knows how long these trailers are going to keep coming. Charlie, do the Republicans have a point here? I'm not really sure. I'm not that familiar with the criminal justice procedure. Um, and in that specific instance that Alex mentioned, I don't know how this new law would actually differ from what the existing law is. But as Alex mentioned, the victims' rights advocates were all on board for this. And so my thought is, if they were okay with it, it's probably not that bad a thing. And I think one of the things that I don't believe came up and which I think is maybe one of the, the significant points is the fact that prosecutors are gonna to have to do a lot more work and public defenders because now before you can be held in a lot of cases, there actually has to be a finding that you're a danger either for running away, you know, skipping out or you're a danger of, to, to the community or, or some individual. And so it's not going to be a matter of the state's attorney brings you in, tells the judge, I want bail for, for $50,000. Judge slams the gavel, says, okay, next case. And then I go out and I put up 10% of that 5,000 and I walk free. 
or if I'm very poor, I can't put up the bail. I lose my job. I sit in county jail for who knows how long, and my whole life is sort of totally messed up. And I think the advocates of this, this change in pretrial bail, the, the whole intent was to kind of fine tune the law so that if you really are a danger to someone, you're gonna be in jail until you actually have a, 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 a trial. But on the other hand, if you're just poor, you're not gonna be stuck in jail because you can't come up with the 10% of, the, of, the, uh, of the, the bail amount. And there are instances of people who, there's a story in one of the Chicago papers just the other day, uh, a couple of violent people who uh, were charged with murder and posted bail and got out and then committed another crime. So that's and one of the things I don't think came up, which in my mind was maybe a, a, a big question and one of the reasons state's attorneys were against it is because cash bail is sort of a cash cow for counties. As a matter of fact, there was a story WNIJ did the other day talking to the Winnebago County State's Attorney who uh, kind of confessed that counties are going to have hard times if they lose the cash bond. And this is a quote from, from the story. If I'm arrested for a crime, I post my 5,000, I end up pleading guilty. Let's say I get a probation. My fines and costs might equal 3,000. That's taken from the bond that I posted. And so it's almost more of a collection issue. So in my mind, that is behind a lot of the arguments. And I don't know, I think there was some mention of reimbursing counties for this new mandate that they actually have to look into an individual before they just throw them in the slammer. If there's some program or, or some fund that will be set up to help reimburse counties for what's being referred to as an unfunded mandate. And Charlie, I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought that up, Charlie, because um, I, I forgot to mention that that it, that there is a provision in this bill, and I think it's about $125 million that's going to go toward county state's attorneys or county offices to help offset the cost of all the new hearings and all the new procedures that they're going to have. But when you extrapolate that out, that's a little more than a million dollars per county, and that's what it, it, it appears to be a one-time grant. So you know, you got people like Leader Durkin, who is from DuPage County, and he's saying a million dollars. What's that going to do for us? Well, my guess is they're not going to do it divided by 102 counties. They may do it based on population. That would make a lot more sense, yes. Yeah, because like a million dollars in, in Gallatin County, that's probably more than their entire budget. Well, also at the end of, or I should say at the start of the year, cash bail now it is going to go away. We've known that for a while. But there is still a lawsuit pending, right, Alex, that could derail some of this? Right, and I think that that lawsuit is getting a hearing soon. There was a consolidated case that was brought before Kankakee, or that was brought in Kankakee County, uh, consolidated from the 60 states attorneys. So um, it's unclear at this point what this law or what, what these changes are going to do for that. But it seems to me that, or it, it sounds like so far, the lawsuit's still going forward. And Charlie, before we leave this, I think a point that you have made before that I think is interesting, your thought all along had been the old idea of you're innocent until proven guilty. 
And for some people, um, having to put up all of this money and not being able to do it, they're going to be detained where somebody who has the resources could easily do it. It's not a, a, it was not a question of whether somebody's uh, guilt or innocence was on the line. It was more about the resources somebody had. Yeah, and that's it, it, a point I've tried to make all along, that for some of these state's attorneys, the notion was that, well, if, if you're charged and you're in jail, it's because you're already guilty. And I think the uh, Will County State's Attorney, James Glasgow, has been particularly, what would you say, outspoken about this issue. And it does run counter to the notion that you're innocent until proven guilty. And particularly in Illinois, which has a horrible track record of people being wrongly convicted, even people sent to death row who turned out to be innocent back before we did away with the death penalty. And it's like, oh, every couple of weeks, you see a story coming out of Chicago where the city council has to approve a, a humongous settlement to someone who was wrongfully convicted because of several rogue police officers. So the, the fact that we don't arrest you unless we think you're guilty, that does fly against the notion of the presumption of innocence and holding you in jail because you can't come up with the bail where someone else who probably is more obviously guilty of a more serious offense can put the money up. I think that's something that needed to be remedied. And I believe that this revamped version of the so-called safety act is going to do that. You're listening to state week. I'm Sean Crawford and our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and Alex Degman. Alex, the week started with a big announcement that involved both the uh, labor organizations, also many of the business groups. The governor was uh, there at his uh, office to have this big announcement. This had to do with the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund, and this trust fund, a big debt was there. Uh, now the state has, has weighed in, and the state is going to take, uh, take care of some of this and hopefully right the ship, it sounds as though. Can you fill us in on what is going to happen there? Sure. So the state's Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund accrued about $4.5 billion in debts throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. This is because the state pretty significantly expanded unemployment benefits. They uh, attracted people like gig workers who aren't traditionally uh, covered under federal unemployment rules. But when they did that, they had to borrow a bunch of money. And that is what they have been trying to pay off this whole time. They did do a little bit of that earlier this year. They paid off about $2.7 billion of it with federal COVID relief money, but that left about $1.8 billion still left. And Republicans at the time were asking, we have $8 billion in ARPA money. Why aren't we just paying off all this debt right now? Um, but that notwithstanding, uh, a little bit after uh, the session ended, the governor put another 400 or the governor authorized another 450 million dollars to be put in there so that made it about 1.4 sorry for all the numbers i know this is a lot to follow but there was an agreement announced this week that would not only retire the remaining roughly 1.4 billion in the unemployment insurance trust fund but it also puts 450 million dollars as a no interest loan to be paid back over 10 years that is essentially meant to Short, to, to shore it up so that we don't have to uh, go through a lot of the uh, problems that we did before. Um, the governor's office says this is all possible. The money that they're putting into this is all possible th uh, through better than expected state revenues. I don't know if you've seen the most recent Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability report, but uh, 
uh, revenues are looking much better than lawmakers thought they would earlier this year. Charlie, this is a good move, you think, financially? Oh, yeah, I think it's a very good move. And I think what I found even more encouraging was the way it was put together. This was basically a return to what was kind of standard back in my reporting days a century ago on workers and workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, where the business community, the labor unions would sit down and they'd hash out what changes might need to be made. And the business would pay a little more, workers might get benefits cut a little bit. And so this was a case where the business interests and organized labor sat down at the table, they worked out this deal, made easier, of course, but as Alex mentioned, the fact that we have totally unexpected revenue excess is not excess, but surplus this year. And the agreement will not reduce any benefits for unemployed people. And it really will be a relatively minor burden on businesses in the sense that, as Alex said, there's going to be another 450 million in the form of, of a low interest loan, zero interest loan that goes into the trust fund, which is going to be repaid over 10 years by higher premiums being paid by employers. The trust fund is funded in totally by basically a tax on employers. And so that would work out to be about 45 million a year, as opposed to a potential for $915 million that businesses were looking at without this agreement. So I think this is a very good thing. And as I say, to me, the, the heartening development is that we may be going back to this notion of an agreed bill process where the people mostly involved in an issue will sit down, work out their differences and come to the legislature and say, here's what we want to do. We're all on board. The legislature, in essence, will rubber stamp it. All right. Well, let's move on to a couple of other topics that came up this week. Legislation approved that would remove investments that are tied to Russia or Belarus uh, from state accounts. And Alex, you covered this. What's the impetus behind this? Well, the impetus is that the Russian and Ukrainian war is still going on. And lawmakers in Illinois have said multiple times, they've been saying this pretty much since the war started, that Illinois needs to do what it can to kind of inflict a little bit of uh, sanction-related pain on Russia. So what they're doing is they're going to, or they, they finally passed a plan. This started in the spring. They didn't quite get it done in the spring session, so they finished it up in the fall. Uh, they passed a final version of a plan to withdraw all state investments from Russian and Belarusian assets. That's a little bit different. And in addition to divesting, the measure gives the Department of Human Services emergency rulemaking powers. And that's if it has to handle a sudden influx of Ukrainian refugees somewhere down the line. Uh, it also it tries to focus on more than just state investments like uh, pension funds and things like that. But it also creates a task force that's going to try to study how much Russian or Belarusian money is invested in Illinois' real estate sectors right now, residential, commercial, industrial. And that's also a little bit different. And it has it has passed both chambers, so the governor's now going to get this. And I think it also does something about the election, coming up a task force to study possible Russian interference in elections. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So it's, uh, and that is specifically for the 2024 election. And Charlie, we've seen this before through the years, whenever there was a problem with some foreign entity that the state 
often will take this type of uh, step to uh, to basically divest. You, you've seen it before in the past, and I, I guess it, it can work, right? I mean, it certainly has an impact. Well, it, it'll work in the sense that, that the, the state is now committed not to invest anything in, 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 in Russian or Belarusian assets, but we don't have a whole lot invested there in the first place. The teacher's retirement system, for example, according to a spokesman, uh, has invested about $4 million or so in Russian assets, none in Belarus. And that's a, a tiny, tiny fraction. It's like 0.007% of the fund's total portfolio. But it's a way also for us to say, we object to what Russia is doing in terms of trying to invade and conquer a sovereign state, Ukraine. And as you said, this isn't the first time that we've done something like this. I remember years and years ago, this would have been probably 40 years ago, when the issue was apartheid in South Africa. And the, the state at that time uh, passed legislation that we would not have any investments in South Africa because of the racist regime of the minority whites in that country. We also have prohibitions, I think, against investing in Sudan, Iran, and, and several other what you would refer to as like hostile nations. Well, while nothing took place on this issue this week, uh, there was legislation that was filed that would actually implement a ban on so-called assault weapons here in the state of Illinois. And this came from a lawmaker. Uh, it was uh, Representative Bob Morgan. He represents an area that includes Highland Park, where they had the deadly July 4th shooting. Alex, what's the plan for this? And it, it, it came up sort of late in the in the fall session. Is there a chance this is going to get some hearing in the lame duck session early in January? I think there's definitely a chance it's going to get a hearing during lame duck. And you said it was filed late. Uh, that's very true. It was filed on literally the last day of the fall veto session. And it does a little bit more than just ban assault weapons or extended magazines and things like that. It also addresses the firearm owner's ID card. And under this bill, you would not be able to get a FOID card if you're under 21 unless you're a member of the military or the Illinois National Guard, period. So parents would not be able to co-sign for you or vouch for you. But if you're one of those military members and you're under 21, you still have to submit proof of that every year to state police until you turn 21. Uh, it also affects hunters. People under 21 who go hunting would need to do so with someone older than 21 who has a valid FOID card. And it also changes the amount of time that petitioners can request to remove firearms from somebody. The firearms restraining order could last up to a year instead of the current six months. Now, uh, regarding the actual ban on assault weapons, it does it does that as well. It bans assault weapons, assault weapon attachments, 50 caliber rifles, 50 caliber cartridges. It also makes it illegal for anybody to knowingly possess an assault weapon, one of those uh, 50 caliber rifles. And uh, 50 caliber cartridges, basically the ammunition for 300 days after the effective date. And some of the guns that they and they actually in the bill, if you read it, they have a whole laundry list of definitions. So they explain exactly what weapons are banned or what weapons would be banned, what kind of ammunition would be banned. We're talking things like uh, an Uzi, an AR-15, a Beretta AR-70, things like that. And it also applies to uh, modifications that would make guns uh, fire rapidly or fire more um, ammunition than they were originally intended to have. So extended magazines, uh, switches, and things like that. Um, however, 
none of this would apply to law enforcement, military, or companies that employ security personnel. Now, Charlie, this uh, whether it gets heard in the uh, upcoming lame duck session or in the spring session, it seems as though there is support, uh, at least growing support in the legislature among Democrats for this piece of legislation. Although I'm not sure on that uh, FOID card in 21, that might be a tough sell. Could this actually make it through? I'm not sure it could still make it through in what's left of the of the current General Assembly session. And as Alex noted, the bill was just introduced, had its first reading in the House on the last day of the fall session. Constitution says the bill has to be read by title on three separate days in each chamber. So what that means as a practical matter is when we come back in January, this bill would have to be read a second time in the House, a third time on another day pass. It could go to the Senate and get its first reading on that day then another day in the Senate, then for second reading and a third day for passage. So just the, the mechanics of it might be difficult. The provisions themselves, I think, as you mentioned, that the making it more difficult for 18-year-olds to get FOIA cards might be a problem. And there's also a question of whether or not the actual language banning assault weapons would be able to withstand a what the inevitable challenge would be ultimately going up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which from its ruling in some other cases seems to be very concerned about infringements on the Second Amendment. All right, well, let's go now to our notes from the field. And Charlie, let's go ahead and start with you. Okay, well, we've talked about it in the past about the number of contempt citations against DCFS Director Mark Smith for not complying with court orders about placing state wards in appropriate settings. These are very troubled young people with mental issues that really are hard to place. And Smith has been held in contempt, gosh, a dozen or so times by a a Cook County judge. Well, the first district appellate court reversed those contempt citations earlier this week And the court found that Smith did not willfully ignore the Cook County judge's order to move children who were discharged from psychiatric hospitals into group homes or residential settings. He he didn't willfully ignore it, the court said. He was just unable to do it. And sort of an interesting note, the opinion was written by, at the time, First District Appellate Court Justice Joy Cunningham. And I say at the time, because just a day or so ago, she was sworn into the Illinois Supreme Court, replacing the retiring Justice Ann Burke. And everybody knows that Abraham Lincoln is Springfield's president. You can't go anywhere in Springfield without bumping into something having to do with Abraham Lincoln. And it's been noted that, you know, there's another president who, who had a lot of connection to, to Springfield, a guy by the name of Barack Obama. Well, this week, finally, the city has unveiled a plaque commemorating Obama's announcement that he was running for president and his choice of Joe Biden as his running mate. And this is a historic marker that's going to be outside the old state capitol where Abraham Lincoln served when he was in the legislature, where he made his House Divided speech. All right. And Alex. Yeah, one of the pieces of legislation that... um 
we were talking about this week but didn't get a whole lot of attention was state senator Jacqueline Collins measure to stop pawnbrokers from issuing loans with triple digit interest rates. Um, pawnbrokers, the reason that this is happening is because pawnbrokers got an injunction a while back. So right now they're not following a state law that was passed last year to cap payday a title and pawn loan interest rates at 36% APR. And this didn't move during veto, but it does have enough support, I think, to pass during lame duck. And it's, and because this is one of the only audiences who I think might appreciate this info, Senate Bill 4241 or House Bill 5850 if you want to follow along. All right, thanks for that. And that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Alex Degman of Illinois Public Radio and WBEC. You can get a podcast of our show available at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. Join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.